Okay, we are, as you might have gathered from the very evident theme throughout the service today, we are looking at Jesus' baptism this morning in Matthew chapter 3, and that is verses 3 through 17. Page number 1,499. I hear a few more pages. Okay. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. In uh, 2 Kings chapter 5, we read a story about a man named Naaman. And many of you are probably familiar with this story, but I'll just kind of give a brief retelling of it. Uh, Naaman was um, the commander of the army of Aram. He was, uh, well, Aram was one of the neighboring countries that Israel was in constant conflict with. And Aram was a really good soldier. He was uh, really thought uh, well of by everyone, including his king. Uh, The only problem with Naaman was that Naaman had leprosy. And leprosy was sort of a catch-all term uh, in the Bible for any skin disease, but the the worst form of leprosy uh, was incurable, Uh, it was contagious, and um, people who had leprosy would end up with appendages actually falling off of their body. And so it was was gross, really. Um, There was a social stigma that came along with it, much like there would be now if, if one of us had an open wound on our body. Uh, we would want to cover it up and, and hide it from everybody as well to avoid the, the social stigma that came with it. Uh, so it was, it was literally a death sentence because it was going to kill you, you were going to die. But it was also a social death sentence as well because nobody wanted to be around you. Well, on one of Naaman's raids into Israel, he captured a, a slave girl and, uh, and she was serving him in his home. Apparently, he was a, a nice slave master because she had compassion on him. And she told him about this prophet in Israel named Elisha, who uh, had the power to cure his leprosy. So Naaman gets a bunch of gold together and a letter from his king, and he goes to the king of Israel asking to be cured. Well, the king of Israel, he he can't cure anybody, and so he's offended and angry to have even been asked. He he expects that uh, what Naaman's trying to do here is pick a fight with him. Thankfully, Elisha heard about all this and uh, told the king to send Naaman down to him. So Naaman comes down to Elisha, knocks on his door, 
Elisha doesn't answer the door. He sends his servant out to go and talk to Naaman. And uh, the servant tells him, hey, Elisha says, if you go to the Jordan River, uh, you dip yourself in this river seven times, you will be cured. Well, now it's Naaman's turn to be offended. He's offended because A, Elisha didn't pay him the respect to come out and to talk to him himself. And he's also offended that Elisha asked him to go dip himself in the Jordan River. Apparently, the Jordan River was quite disgusting. He thought that uh, Elisha should have asked him to go to one of the great rivers of Damascus uh, to be healed. And so he storms off to go back home. Well, on the way, his servant says this to him. He says, my father... If the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. So here Naaman is, he's well loved, Uh, he's a great commander, and yet even though he has an incurable disease, It was a struggle for him to humble himself and crawl into a dirty river in Israel, even for the chance to be cured. Why do you think that is? I think we all know, right? The human heart hates to be humbled. We don't want anyone to know about the oozing sores in our life. We want to cover them up. And even when the sores grow and we get desperate, we can still find it so difficult to humble ourselves and accept the healing that we need. And physical oozing sores that we're ashamed of are just like the oozing spiritual sores in our life that we're ashamed of. We don't want anyone to know about those either. We tell ourselves things like, well, I can quit on my own. (laughs) No one needs to know. We don't want anyone to know that our marriage is struggling, and so we hide because the one thing that people in a marriage that's struggling can agree on is that they don't want anyone to know. And all of this speaks to why John's baptism is so amazing. All these people coming out to John confessing their sins and then crawling into the water and letting somebody else lower them down into it, admitting to everyone that's there that oozing sores of sin are in their life and they need to be washed and healed. But let's be honest. How many of us would feel comfortable doing this? Going out to a river proclaiming aloud our sins. If there's sin hiding in the dark of our secret life, how would we feel about confessing it, let alone to anyone? Let alone submitting to a public display, identifying us as that kind of person. For most of us, like Naaman, we would rather go home and die than have anyone see us crawl into the dirty river in Israel even if that's what it took to be healed of that sin. Because usually, the people who are willing to confess their sins like this and crawl into a dirty river together and submit to a public display of their need to be cleansed are people who have nothing left to lose. 
Think about the graduations of the Bedeso Gospel Mission. These men will stand up there and they will, they will say out loud things that they've gone through and things that they've done um, that is difficult for people to confess. And so it's the prostitutes and the tax collectors. It's the drug addicts and the porn addicts and the adulterers who've destroyed their lives and been found out already. They've been humiliated and now they're just so happy to be forgiven and free. Those are the people who typically end up at places like this, confessing their sins and getting baptized. And I imagine that this is the crowd that John is baptizing, people who are desperate for healing. Their sin has made them sick and miserable, and they're just tired of it. So you can imagine that this crowd at the river is filled with prostitutes and tax collectors and drunks and you name it. But I wonder... I wonder if there were others there too. People who on the outside look real good, but who were sick of the oozing sore of sin in their life. I can imagine people like that going out to this river and confessing things like greed and gluttony and gossip and anger and hatred and pride. Things that they could have kept hidden So no one would ever associate them with the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the drunks. But God and his grace made them so sick of their sin that it didn't matter to them anymore that they're out there at this river associated with those kinds of people. Because at the end of the day, it's every sin, even the ones that we can still look good doing, that needs to be confessed and forgiven and washed away. And then Jesus shows up. It would have been about a 70-mile journey from Galilee down to the wilderness of Judea. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all testify to the fact that the baptism of Jesus by John is the very first event in Jesus' public ministry, uh, which means that Jesus would have showed up here with his carpenter's apron still on. Uh, No one would have known who he is. The, The glory that he has as the eternal Son of God is totally hidden by his completely ordinary and anonymous human body. And if you saw Jesus out there at the river, he would have looked like just any ordinary man. Isaiah tells us he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And so if you just picture him waiting in line to get baptized and you're waiting there with him, you think he's just one of you. He think, you think he's another sinner out there ready to confess out loud all of his sins and be baptized by John. But John knows John knows exactly who Jesus is, and all of a sudden, John looks up to see the next person coming to him for baptism, and it's Jesus. It's the person that he just got done saying is greater than he is. The person he just got done saying, I'm not even worthy to take off his shoes The one who has the power to baptize someone with the Holy Spirit and really, truly take away sin. And now he's coming out to John to be baptized? In the book of John, when uh, John sees him, his words are, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John looks up and sees Jesus coming to him to get baptized with a baptism for the repentance of sins, even though Jesus has no sins to repent of. 
He is here to save his people from their sins. He is the son of Abraham and the son of David. He's Emmanuel, God with us, born of a virgin. He is the coming king who is bringing the kingdom, fulfilling the Old Testament. He is worthy of all of our worship. He is the one who could be trusted in the midst of searing loss. He is the one who's going to come and judge and separate the wheat from the chaff. And John knows all this on some level, even if he doesn't have all the details, because John is a believer. And just like the Magi, who'd had their eyes opened to the glory of who that baby was, John had his eyes opened to the glory of who Jesus really and truly was. And when God opens our eyes to see his glory, we know that he is the object of our faith. We know that he's the one that we can hope in, the one that's deserving of all of our worship, because the eyes of faith are able to see past the ordinary human body cloaking his glory. And so John looks up, and through the eyes of faith, he sees his glorious, sinless king. And so John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? So the New International Version translates that verb there, to deter him. Um, That actually means uh, to forbid. So John's doing more here than just trying to talk Jesus out of it. He's trying to stop him. Because remember, John doesn't see himself as even being worthy to take off his shoes. And now Jesus is coming to John, and John's now all of a sudden in this position of religious authority, baptizing Jesus. And John's saying, look, I need what you have to give me. You don't need what I have. John's saying, look around at all these tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. I'm one of them. I'm just like them. I need you to forgive me and cleanse me too. Then Jesus replied, let it be so now. He's saying, you're right, John. I don't need to be baptized with a baptism of repentance. I am greater than you are, but let it be so now. Why? Jesus says, it is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. Notice he doesn't say, it is proper for me to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. He says, it is proper for us, right? He's including John in this. He's affirming John. He's affirming John's ministry. He's affirming the fact that sinners need to confess their sins, repent, and be cleansed and healed from their sins. And it's proper for them to do this to fulfill all righteousness. So far in the book of Matthew, we have seen how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. He's a The person the Old Testament points to directly as the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Abraham, the Son of David. But he's also the one that the Old Testament points to indirectly, right? He's the true Israel. He's the true Son of God. He's the true Moses who leads his people out of bondage in Egypt through the desert of this life into the ultimate promised land. And so when Matthew uses the word fulfill here, he's not talking anymore about something specific from the Old Testament Because the word righteousness in the book of Matthew always refers to obedience to the commands of God. So Jesus 
is telling John that he needs to be baptized to fulfill what the Father has commanded. And Jesus always does what the Father commands. So the question really is, why would the Father command his sinless Son to submit to a baptism for the repentance of sin when he has no sins to repent of? Well, let's think about it. Jesus goes out to this river, and you have all these sinners being baptized. You have the Sadducees and the Pharisees looking on, judging the whole scene. And what does Jesus do? He walks right out there to that river, points at all those sinners, and says, I'm with them. I'm with them. And then he gets baptized too. So Naaman was the commander of the army of Aram, and he really did have an oozing sore, and yet he struggled to go by himself with only his servants watching and dip himself in the Jordan River, and yet here Jesus is, the sinless commander of heaven's army, walking into a dirty river filled with sinners and saying, these are my people. And it wasn't a struggle. He wanted to humble himself. I don't know about you, but when I'm innocent and somebody thinks I'm guilty, all that I want to do is say, I didn't do it. I'm not, I'm not with those people. I'm innocent. And even when I am guilty, I want everyone to know that I'm not that guilty, right? I want to say things like, well, I know that I did this, but I didn't do that. I'm not like those people. Right? That's the impulse of my sinful heart, right? To, to justify myself. And yet Jesus walks out there, perfectly innocent, with no compulsion to explain himself or justify himself. He just goes out there and he takes on our shame. It didn't matter to Jesus what this looked like. He wanted his people to know that he is with them and, and he wanted us to know that he would accept the waters of judgment so that we could be carried in the ark on top. He wanted us to know that he would let the waters of the sea crash in on him so that we could walk across on dry land. He wanted us to know that he would accept the ultimate baptism by fire on the cross so we could be washed by the Holy Spirit and purified by that fire. Speaking of his baptism, or sorry, speaking of his crucifixion, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus says this. He says, but I have a baptism to undergo and what constraint I am under until it's completed. See, Jesus undergoing this baptism with John shows us his humility, his willingness to be identified with sinners. And water, remember, is something that cleanses and destroys. And so it points forward to his being destroyed so that we can be cleansed. And it shows his willingness to obey what God requires regardless of the consequences to himself. And in this display of humility, he's inviting us to trust him. He's telling us that it's okay for us, too, to expose our oozing sores. Then, as soon as Jesus was baptized, 
he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now, some have suggested that the heavens opening up like this was a public event. Um, But in verse 16, we're told, it says that Jesus saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove on him. And so even though the voice from heaven is talking to more than one person here, it must be including John the Baptist or the hosts of heaven. Because think about it, if everyone there at that scene, including the Pharisees, had seen and heard this display of Jesus being identified as God's Son and the Holy Spirit coming down on him, there would have been no doubt about who Jesus is. And yet Jesus leaves this scene still completely anonymous. So what we have here is an intimate moment within the Trinity. Now the Trinity is one of those words that we don't find in the Bible, but it is an extremely useful term because it describes something that we do see in the Bible. The Bible teaches that there is only one God, and yet the Bible also teaches that Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and the Father is God. And so here, for the very first time, we see the Trinity coming together as Jesus is baptized and the Holy Spirit descends and the voice of the Father is heard. We see the very clearly, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're distinct from each other. Now, some have tried to maintain the oneness of God by denying the threeness of God. Because it's honestly, if we're all being honest, it's very hard to wrap our minds around how is it possible that there's one God and three persons? We, we can't fully comprehend that reality. Uh, and so one of the ways people try to resolve this is they say, well, he's one God, but he appears sometimes as Father, other times as Son, other times as the Holy Spirit. And that's a, that's a heresy called modalism, right? They're, they're basically saying that God appears in these different modes. He, he appears in the mode of Father. He appears in the mode of the Son. He appears in the mode of the Holy Spirit. Um, and that's actually the same exact heresy that we teach our children when we tell them that the Trinity is like water, ice, and steam. So I'm sorry to break it to you if uh, that's one of your favorite analogies to, to teach your children, but just know you're teaching heresy when you do. I'm sorry. Um, it's honestly, honestly, it's better just to tell them that there is one God and three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then when your children ask you, well, mom and dad, how does that work? How do, we, how do we make sense out of that? What you say is, I don't know. But this is what the scriptures clearly teach us. That there is one God, and he is in the person of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because here in this passage, we clearly see Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God all present at the exact same time, yet distinct from each other, and yet we know from the rest of scripture that each one of them is God. And... In this intimate moment, within the Trinity, we see the Father anointing the Son with the Holy Spirit. If you remember, when we began in the book of Matthew, we were introduced to Jesus as the Messiah. And we said that uh, the Messiah means the anointed one. And here we see God anointing his Son for the task ahead of him. So in the Old Testament, uh, there were three offices that were anointed. Um, prophets were anointed to be prophets, uh, priests were anointed to their office as priests, and kings are anointed to their office as 
uh, kings. And so what's happening in this moment, as Jesus comes out of the water, at the very beginning of his public ministry, is God not only pouring out his love and approval on Jesus, but he's pouring out the anointing oil of the Holy Spirit on him for the work that he was about to do on behalf of sinners. As a prophet, he will proclaim the way of salvation. As a priest, he will offer his own life as a sacrifice for sin. And then, even now as a priest, he sits at the right hand of God, praying and interceding for those who put their trust in him. And then as the ultimate king, Jesus rules his people by his word and by his spirit, and he protects us from falling away. Here's what the Heidelberg Catechism says. It says, why is he called Christ, meaning anointed? Well, the answer is because he has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit. And right there, the catechism actually references the baptism of Jesus. To be our chief prophet and teacher, who fully reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our deliverance. Our only high priest, who has delivered us by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually pleads our cause with the Father and our eternal King, who governs us by his word and spirit and who guards us and keeps us in the freedom he has won for us. And so we know also that this is the time of his anointing because the Old Testament connects anointing oil with being anointed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, When David was anointed as king, we read this. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Peter in Acts, when talking about Jesus uh, being anointed, he says this, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. And then I want us to listen to these words. Uh, This is from the book of Isaiah, pointing forward to Jesus' baptism. This is God speaking. He says, Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. Remember what he says at the baptism. This is my son, in whom I am well pleased, right? I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations— He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged. He will establish justice on earth and his teaching the islands will put their hope. In Isaiah chapter 40 through chapter 55, there's this uh, figure that you keep seeing being referenced over and over again. Uh, And theologians have referred to this figure as the suffering servant. Isaiah 53 is the most popular servant song or the one where the suffering servant is described. And Isaiah 53 is familiar to most of us because in that passage, which we know was written well before Jesus' crucifixion, his death on behalf of sinners is so clearly portrayed. And here again, we have the suffering servant in Isaiah 42 pointing forward to our passage from this morning, right? The Holy Spirit is on him. God delights in him. And God comes to Jesus At the beginning of his ministry, while he's an unknown carpenter from Galilee, while he's in the middle of identifying himself with a bunch of sinners in humiliating obedience, and in this moment, God anoints him as the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, and the ultimate king. And then God also assures him of his love, which I think is amazing because we can find ourselves thinking like, well, why would Jesus, since he's God, need to be assured of God's love? And 
as God, he doesn't need to be assured of God's love. But Jesus is also a human. And there's this mysterious thing that happens when Jesus steps down and takes on flesh. And so as a human, he needed the encouragement. As a human, how wonderful it would have been to come up out of that water and hear the Father's voice say, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And so for those of us who are united to Christ by faith, when we put our trust in him alone for salvation, we can know that Jesus will be gentle with us. That he knows that we are weak like a wilting plant and he will not break us off. He will be gentle and kind with us and he will nourish us with his love and with his grace. He knows that we're like a candle with hardly any wick left and sometimes it feels like we're flickering and the hot wax that's kind of building up around us is going to like eventually cover us and drown us out. And yet we can know that Jesus will protect us from the wind and the storms and he will make sure that our fire of faith does not go out. And for those of us who've been sinned against, We can know that Jesus came to establish justice and he will make all things new and he will right every wrong. And for those of us who are united to Christ by faith, when we put our trust in him alone for our salvation, we can know that when God sees us, he sees what Christ has done for us. And he is pleased with us for Jesus' sake. Do you know that, Emmanuel Church? that when you are united to Christ by faith, that you are so one with your Savior, so completely united to him, so adopted into the family of God as a child of God, that for Jesus' sake, when God looks at you, he sees a child in whom he loves and with whom he is well pleased. And even when we don't feel like it, even when we have just sinned, we can know by faith that for Christ's sake, God is pleased with me. Do you know that? And the way that we enter fully into this reality is just to simply trust him. He's not asking us to do some great thing. He's asking us to come to crawl into a dirty river with him and all the other sinners. Admit who we really are. Let him be the one to wash us and cleanse us and purify us. Let's pray. Father, we confess that the profound spiritual depth of the baptism of your son is something that we have only scratched the surface of this morning. And yet we also thank you that you've stirred our hearts um, with love for Jesus, that he would be willing to humble himself and identify himself as one of us so he could save us and protect us and rule us and be our priest so that our ears would be open to hear his prophetic voice telling us how that we can be delivered from our sin We thank you, Father, that you unite us to him by faith. And so for his sake, you are pleased with us. 
We thank you for these realities, God. We pray that you would continue to encourage us by them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.